Hi everyone, this is Olga Mack. Today I am here with Avram and we will talk about managing international teams. Avram, please introduce yourself. Okay, hi and uh, good day, Olga. It's a pleasure to be your host. Um, I've uh, been a lawyer for 25 years uh, approximately nowadays. Um, I started my uh, work uh, as a um, student in uh, both master's and, and uh, obviously bachelor's degrees here in Israel. And I worked my way through being a military prosecutor during my um, service. Later on, I moved to the private sector and I worked in several um, in-house uh, positions, uh, mainly in the insurance market. The last one was AIG, which I served for general counsel for uh, Middle East and Africa region. Um, I had professionals in, in Moscow, in Johannesburg, Nairobi, in Dubai, and in Israel. Uh, and qualification beyond that, I'm also qualified here in Israel, and I'm also qualified in uh, England and Wales as a solicitor. So that's in a nutshell. I like your path from the military prosecutor to uh, in-house. That, that's not a path you see very often, at least not in the United States. What, what are the commonalities between being the prosecutor and um, in-house lawyer, if any? Well, I, I think there's not a lot, but I think that the main one, from my perspective, was the need to be very tentative to your environment, to listen to the witness during litigation, to listen to the uh, judges, to listen to the other party. And I think that in in-house, you also have to be very, very tentative to your environment, but it's, it's your peers, it's your boss, it's your directors, it's your team, it's your colleagues. And I think that one of the key items or, or takeaways that I took from my experience in the military was when I had a discussion, one of the discussions, I accused one of the witnesses that he's lying and he's trying to maneuver and manipulate and then the chief just, uh, judge said, well, hang on, you know, Mr. Prosecutor, maybe he's wrong. Maybe he doesn't understand. Maybe your question wasn't clear enough. Why don't you, instead of going to the worst assumption, go to the best assumption to in his part and try to deal with that? And actually, from that lesson that I took in court, which was totally litigious environment, I took to my life and, and every time, my professional life, and every time I speak with someone and he raises an objection and he later... Um, uh, you know, trying to understand and, and to mitigate what's going on, I uh, I always take that advice and say, well, hang on, maybe he doesn't understand me. Maybe he's coming with good intention. I don't understand him. So I think that I found the practical way um, to take the action items from from my litigious part of life to to my in-house work. Very interesting. Um, I, I've also had a, I've been a prosecutor, not in military, in um, in San Francisco DA's office under Kamala Harris, uh, and later went in house. And um, I kind of like yourself feel that um, respect to people that you you deal with every day, um, even if you disagree with them, is something that you can carry with you uh, in any job, especially in house jobs. So I actually found that training to be quite helpful in my career, um, and uh, and completely understand where you come from. You mentioned working with teams in Middle East and Africa companies that may or may not be in your region. That sounds like a complicated job. It is. Um, it is a complicated job. You have to be very, very tentative and very um, forthcoming in trying to assist, trying to understand 
what are the bridges, try to understand which creeks are there in, in your relationship that you need to build the bridges over. And so I think it's very, very complex, but that's the beauty of it. I mean, if you don't like to work with people, it's very, very hard to lead. You have to love it and you have to understand that people are unexpected. And that's why still CEOs get paid much more than still chief, you know, IT officers because they deal with people which are still more complex than computers. I'm with you. I, I, I definitely am finding the beauty in that and the right people who feed into right opportunities, definitely something that you do as both general counsel and the CEO. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about the sort of uh, cross-cultural teams and how to build successful working relationship with your international counterparts that you may never meet. So the challenge is, as you said, how do you lead people that you don't know? And I think that the most important thing from my perspective was to create the personal relationship as much as you can. And, and I think coronavirus has done a bit of a service out of the very bad things that happened in 2020. One of the services is that getting video communication, one-on-one, small groups, you know, periodical became very, very uh, uh, frequent and very, very acceptable. And from my perspective, when I started, I decided that all my conversations with my team members are always going to be in video. And the most important thing about that is that you get a lot of nonverbal communication with your team. You see if you're, you know, if, if they're with you or they're not focused, you see if they have subtext or, or body language that shows uh, resentment or, you know, um, or uh, uh, thinking differently. And it's very, very important thing that you cannot do over the phone, obviously, just because you don't see them. So that was for my first, my, my first point was to make sure that the medium that we use is the one that provides me with the most information. The second point that I took upon myself is to find out what are their needs. Now, it's very, very difficult. It's not easy. Not all people are forthcoming. Not all cultures are forthcoming. And you cannot be um, judgmental. You have to be very, very uh, accepting and very, very forthcoming and asking a lot of questions. I'm pretty confident that a lot of the ideas that I raised uh, seemed very um, avant-garde for them and didn't, you know, they didn't see what I'm doing. But you need to explain and cooperate and communicate. So my second issue is to understand what are their needs, really, really, what do they look for? What is a lonely uh, legal counsel in Nairobi seeks? What would be the things that I can, can assist them? The important thing about that is that you want to be a leader that provides added value to your team and not a leader just because you have the title. Because once you have the title, and that's why you think people will follow you. They will follow you, but they're not going to be engaged. They would not try to contribute. They would not try to change things because they say, okay, you know, this guy has all his quirks and ideas, but we don't get anything out of it. So, you know, why should we invest more than just doing the minimum? So I have done my best to understand what their needs are and where the difficulties are. Obviously, people are not immediately honest. So you have to find the way you, you ask questions and do it in various ways. You try to explain. The most important thing is if you're authentic, and that's the third point, that you have to be authentic, that when you offer added value, it's not offer added value that you would gain the credit for added value. No, you have to get the added value so they would feel that they got the added value. So, for example, a lot of times they would confer with me on how to deal with their CEO and their local offices. 
and I would not call the CEO later. So I would give them guidance. I would suggest what to do. And then I asked them to, to feedback and I would see if that worked or not. And this way they saw that they got the credit for their CEO, although, you know, it wasn't their idea. And for me, it was great because the, the feedback that I received from the CEOs, which I had a periodical call with, was that your team continued to move in the right direction. And at the end of the day, my boss was happy because I told him that I feel my team is becoming stronger. My team said that they felt stronger. And my internal clients around the, the area said that they were getting stronger. So everyone saw that. And the idea is not that I was present, God forbid, never present in each and every interaction, but I just gave them the right tools. So they felt, you know, when I speak with Avram, I get something out of it and it helps me. And that's a very, very important starting point. At the end of the day, I think that what I spoke of got to, to creating trust. And even though not all of them were very talkative, um, you know, Israelis are known to be very, very outcoming and very direct. Um, other cultures are less so, but still we, we got to the engagement and I felt that every time I needed them, they were there for me. And, uh, and that my team knew that if I said that something was very urgent, then, you know, by the time we said it, it was ready, even though they had a lot of work to do. I want to follow up on a couple of things. One, you talk about, you mentioned the beginning of conversation and respect. Um, and a few times you mentioned that, you know, cultures are different. You know, some are more expressive than others. Uh, honesty can mean different things in different uh, regions. Um, how do you show respect across culture? First of all, I think that you have to listen. I think that um, the same way that you asked me to present myself, I asked them to present themselves. And then I took a few questions to see how they relate to that. And I tried to see if how comfortable they feel with these questions. And, you know, you, do, you try to be personal, but not too personal because, you know, in Western culture, at least there are things that, that you're not supposed to get into. On the other hand, you try to get a bit professional, a bit to understand how they're cooperating and see how the communication goes. So that's another, you know, trying to think questions. I also read about it. Actually, in, when I was in, in, uh, in AIG, we had, a, we had a meeting of people from several continents that talked about culture. And one of the lectures that some of the presentations that someone gave was on the fact that uh, he talked about uh, candid uh, culture into a more uh, innuendo sort of uh, culture that, you know, people signal to each other and are not that clear in, in messaging. And that's a, sort of, you know, a, a scale that you have to find out where you're at. Um, so I tried to, to find out the people that came from, how they're dealing, you know, what, what are the country or what are the culture in their country. And it's very easy to read these days about these things. And the last thing is, I think that time is needed um, because then you prove yourself. So if suddenly you get a call from one of your team members and he says, I need something very urgently, you know, sorry to call you, but I need it very now, your assistance. I think that if you vacate the time and you deal with the other relationships that you have and you know how to, you know, we all know how to buy some time. And you show them that you respond immediately and you respond to the point and you get to the details and you don't just, you know, wave them off. You show by your actions. And that's the most important thing. People see your actions and through the actions, they learn respect and they learn about trust and they learn about how you, you care about them. The downside is that there's no um, 
quick track for that. There's no fast track for that. You need to do that and you need to take upon yourself, at least in my management style, is you do have to take the commitment to be available, to be accessible. And there are prices, obviously, you know, they're not always calling you at the right time and it's not always easy, but, but I really believe that through action at the end of the day, people cherish that, people understand that. So I think that action and time and getting some more uh, background information is very, very he- helpful in, in running these things. You observe that every relationship, including working relationship, is a personal relationship first. In the end of the day, we work with the people for the people. So if you don't like the people, that's a challenge. You will not go above and beyond. You will not be inspired to really practice law on top of your license. How do you build that personal relationship that is effective, inspiring, and sustainable through maybe even difficult cross-cultural conversations? Actions speak louder than words. So if you see, if, if you see that your manager says, I'm going to be there for you, and then he is, he is good on his word, then there's no reason why I would not reciprocate. Why when he asked me something, I would not do that for him. And I think that, that uh, this personal example is very, very important, especially, as, as you mentioned, Olga, that these are people that never met you face-to-face. And it's small things. You know, you make yourself a cup of coffee and you make two. Okay, that's people really, you know, it's small things. People cherish these small things. If, if you show that you care, people will care back. That's my experience. And overseas, when they said, listen, I have a problem with IT, you can say, well, you know what? Maybe I'll speak with IT. What do you say? That's going to be, you know, it's going to be very weird that the guy overseas is calling IT. And they said, well, you know what? Why don't we try that? And, and the fact that you suddenly do something out of the blue that would really assist them, and hopefully it also gets the results, uh, is something that people also you know, appreciate. So I, I think caring and trust is, is very, very important. This is the, this is the foundation. Uh, and see, and I remember vividly, there were certain um, discussions that were not easy and we all as general counsel get to not, you know, if, if, if the questions that you deal with are always easy, then your job is too small for you. If, you know, you need to get complex questions. You need to, you know, this is a national challenge. And I knew that, that every time him to pull him, he would do that because he knew that I don't come to him every day, but I come to him very seldom. So that, that's another. Imitating successful leaders is something that I really took to heart. If the job is easy, uh, it's too small for you. It's, it's um, a very interesting observation. I suppose as in-house lawyers, we, we no longer have easy jobs. Running international transaction deals, um, discussions, uh, whether through video or traveling or in other ways, is actually normalized and, and a normal part of general counsel job uh, or those people who are in the office of the general counsel. What do you think are essential steps and, and, and approaches in running international transactions and deals at sort of at a high level? I'm, I'm going to surprise you a bit, I think. I think that the first thing is to try and understand how your non-legal team members, how experienced are they with these kind of deals, Because especially they're your CEO, um, because you need to understand how can they contribute and can guide you through the 
through through the deal that you got to go through. If they, do they have any experience, or they don't have any experience? Because if they do have experience, you know, you can consult with them on commercial issues. And if they don't, they, at a lot of times you'll find yourself that you need to explain to them. And now that's a good thing. You know, they, they could be very very strong in other things, not M and A, but uh, you know, the daily basis uh, work. But but you need to do that, and they look up to you. And if you want to be a leader in that transaction, then you need to do it uh, very. Um, in a very aware way. So that, that was the first thing that I would see, you know, your in-house stuff. And I can tell you, you know, we, we just uh, uh, um, signed an MOU with, uh, with a company from, from uh, Abu Dhabi. It was a big change for us. And obviously, you know, doing for an Israeli tra- company transaction with a company in, in the Emirates was a big, big change. For me, it wasn't the first time, but it was a big change for them. And I needed to work with them because I'm, I came from the insurance sector to the energy sector and I needed to learn the business. So, I engaged with them to see what they know. I understood how much they knew about M&A. I knew that I don't know too much about the business because I was only a few months in, in, in office. And this way, first of all, you understand your internal company team, uh, where are the strong suits and, and when you need support. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is I always try um, to, when you're in the MOU level, it's more easy going because it's not legally binding or, you know, if you're doing an MOU, which is not a contract, then you make sure that only basic stuff where it's defended, you know, confidentiality, no shop and things like that. So you're much more lenient. Once you get to the actual contract stage, I think that it is very important that you try to find um, recommendation and good lawyers in the new jurisdiction that you work with. That's very, very important. Um, I can tell you that for the Emirates deal, I have interviewed four prominent law firms and I actually interviewed them. I spoke with them one-on-one to make sure that we we understand uh, if they know the industry itself, if they know the business, if they know the local market, if they have the connections, if they know the law. Uh, And knowing the law is not the only part. It's a key uh, fundamental part, but it's not the only part. so, and to get to that, you need if either to get recommendations from peers or, or you look up with friends or, you know, memberships in all kinds of international organizations. Um, I think that the, when you do your first deal, it's very, very important that you get a very strong law firm overseas because these guys actually, you've got to rely on them on a lot of, of local law that you don't have the slightest idea how to relate to. And at, my experience is that the principles are very, very the same in all M&A con, you know, contracts around the world. However, they're all small tweaks and, and, you know, and, and, and issues that are local that you need to make sure that, that someone handles them and, and that they're raised for you. Uh, be it uh, employee rights, be it um, IP, um, foreign currency, um, possibility of majority um, holdings, and so on and so forth. So, I think that getting a law from a strong law firm is very, very important and it's worth the investment. And it's very important that you would feel comfortable with the person that you work with. Again, interview goes that, you know, to a certain length, but you should invest in it and see that you're bonding and, and you understand each other quickly uh, because this relationship is going to be very, very important when there are going to be um, crises and there are going to be crises. So, you need to make sure that the guy that you speak with is someone that you feel comfortable to rely on, uh, and that he will consult for you, and he will consult you. Sorry, uh, for that time being, and uh, so that's very, very important. 
I always try after I did these two steps to really define what do we want to get out of the deal. And at times, as strange as it might be, you know, the business people are not sure they know what they want to, you know, we want a deal, we want to make the revenue, we want to get the merchandise, we want to get the, you know, the raw material. Okay, but how? How are we going to do that? At what terms? What are going to be the payment terms? Are we going to get an intermediary or are we going to do it directly? Or do we need to do it uh, uh, with a certain tax planning or we do do it uh, plain vanilla? So there are a lot of considerations and, and not all the time people are really understanding what are the needs. So you have to really, really define the needs, especially when you later need to convey to a different culture and people that don't speak your language and don't feel that, that the things that are very important to you are important to them. It might be very, very different and they would, you know, think that that other things are important. So you need to, to get that as much as possible defined and engage with them and try to do it in small steps. I mean, everyone wants to close the deal very, very quickly. But, you know, if you're running, sometimes my experience is that sometimes when you run too fast, the other party loses you, they don't understand. And again, that might create a, a crisis. So you need to take sometimes a bit, smaller steps and, and define things jointly to make sure that we're on the same page. So, so I think that this is key in the interaction. Um, obviously getting, you know, all the support for finance, getting the support from the business, but, but I think that these are the, the key issue. And if there's a general counsel on the other side, I would try my best to engage with him and try to create another um, a channel of communication, someone that you know that that you have common grounds at least as you know as as being general counsel, uh, in order again when crisis will come to have someone that you can engage with and overcome things and discuss them. I think communication is extremely important. I I like it how um, you very observantly notice that um, that teams often include professionals from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, you may be leading the legal team, but as a leader of a legal team, your peers are not necessarily in the, on your team. They, they may be in other functions. But let's say I'm told by my manager, my CEO, to lead five people team in three different countries uh, for some short-term specific project. Let's call it a transaction. What are my first three, five steps? What are the first three things I do uh, to really set myself up for success? First of all, you need to chart up to yourself with your CEO. What do we want to achieve? And, and from my perspective, what is the timeline that he expects? And try to manage his expectation, first of all. First and foremost, the person that you need to get the results to and is going to judge your results is someone that you need to make sure that these expectations are managed and that you and him are on the same page. I can tell you just recently from my current discussion with my CEO, he raised certain uh, field that he wanted us to explore. I had three, five conversations with him. One of them was, you know, uh, with also after a study that we made and he still felt that we are not doing what he expected. And I said, listen, you know, we need to define uh, uh, much better together what you're looking for. So I would know how to meet that up in a time frame that you feel comfortable because obviously I can write an encyclopedia on everything. I just don't have the time to do that. So it's... A, <laughs> the, um, luckily he agreed. <laughs> so it did. 
<laughs> so in the end, what I'm trying to say is first manage expectations, understand what is the mission and, and, and see what are the key points. For example, if you're going to a transaction, what are the key factors that are most important for him? He doesn't need to, to you know, he has you to close all the details, but you really understand from him what are the things that are important for him. So you make sure that, you know, you never miss them because it's very embarrassing. Uh, you know, you say you're, you're sailing into a M&A deal and the most important thing for him is to retain the founder, let's say, and uh, just no one told you that the all of the know-how is with that founder and you didn't do the right contract with him personally. So the whole SHA and SBA are totally irrelevant because this guy can leave the next day. So obviously, you need to make sure that you understand that. Um that never happened to me. Other problems have occurred, and I also made mistakes like the other guys. But you know, but at the end of the day, you need to make sure that the critical issues are mapped out and are clear. And from my perspective, timelines is critical because people a lot of times think that you know it's an MA deal. How complicated can it be? We can oh, get it really complicated and it can last for years. I've been on one of those. <laughs> Well, I didn't have one for years. I had one shortest, uh, uh, several, obviously, shorter than that. But, but you know, CEOs want things done yesterday quickly and accurately, okay? Now you need to start from that expectation, which is totally unrealistic, to become realistic. So you need to engage, and you need to make sure that you're managing the expectations as much as you can. So that's that's my first. After I have that, I would, if I, know, if I don't know the team members, I would do a quick one-on-one. I always... Try. I always prepare myself to a meeting, especially with people I don't know. So if this team is a, a ad hoc team that I have no understand, no knowledge of these guys, I would do immediately a one-on-one before I even speak with the whole team, just to sense who's the more active one, who's the one that I that I foresee, you know, only on first impressions. But that's what you have. It's the best you can get. Problems with. Who's the one that you and you know you and him interact very very closely, and who's the one that totally doesn't understand what you want from him, and it would take you a lot of time to explain to him. So these one on ones are very very important because then when you get to the next meeting, which is the kickoff from my perspective, where you're going to you know um, present everyone to everyone, and you're gonna show them you know what what the mission is and you'll set the timelines and then you set the detailed missions to each and every one and you will set um you know uh, you get questions and you will clarify and so when you get to that kickoff you at least know the people on a first impression basis you don't need to reveal yourself you don't need to suit up you know just to show that you know how to wear a suit but you would be already more authentic and, and more into the work so that's from my perspective i can tell you that I had several items like that, and uh, and we started with all kinds of deals with people not in a, in Dubai, but all but in New York, which is you know much more known and and familiar. But still, these are people that I hardly met because you know I, I, they weren't on my day to day missions. And we had a very intense um, work time span together on that specific deal. And and I came with my crazy ideas from Israel, and they were like, you know, this is the U.S. Uh, you don't know if you know that, but things don't work this way. And I needed to explain to them why things would work this way and how we're going to persuade them. So, but but the the fact that I started with a one on one, I knew a bit how to speak with each with each of them. And later, when we had the team meeting, I knew how to to navigate myself. Um, 
I think that after you have made the relationship and you made the the mission statement and you and you try and, and you set the mission the most important thing about mission like always is to define who's responsible to define what the timeline to define what's the deliverable and I personally like to build sort of a Gantt that you know really um, in the most detailed way details all of the stages um, obviously at times this is not practical but you need As much as you can and even if you have only seven items that's a good start and you will refresh them as you go along but this is very important for my experience because this way you make sure that everyone's expectations and understanding of how the process is going to go is as close as possible obviously we cannot get into someone else's head currently but this way once you not yet, on, not yet <laughs> not yet not yet but once you put it on paper you know on a word document or whatever or Excel or PowerPoint whatever is convenient and everyone sees it there's a good chance that everyone understand where you're going so that's a very very strong tool from my perspective I think that the next stage is to make sure that even though there are a lot of random engagements you know I do something and suddenly I need George from IT to let me know what he thinks about that and so on and so forth uh, and then you call someone for my finance and you do these random engagements and I think that it is very important even vital that you would have a periodical call that everyone's online and again if video is much is the preferred medium from my perspective and then to make sure that we go over the you know the, the mission list and it's sometimes very tedious and very it looks like you know come on we can have some more fun more flexibility I'm I think that uh, you know you need to go to the final details and make sure that you cover all the All the angles and you dot all the eyes and you cross all the T's so when you get through that list and you mark it off personally I like marking off things it shows that you did something progress 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 precisely thank you and I think that that when you have everyone they get the sense of progress as you just said I think they understand what's going on people also want to know and it's imperative that they would know it's two things they want to know it's imperative that they would know what's going on with other people because first of all we're all on one hand we're all competitive and we're all you know want to see that we're doing the best you know world number one especially if you can manufacture that in your team let's go let's go then you know it's it's a good vibe um, so they want to know what's going on from their competition they want also to know because they want to know people are you know gossip is not something that came to the world just just of thin air it came because people want to know and, and want to understand what's going on in society and in the team so even if it's information which is not directly related to them it's important that they would know because it could give them this, you know the, the the sphere of things and understanding of, of what's going on and how important sometimes it can convey how important their role is because they're part of the team And I think that it is imperative because if I understand that you know from from the call that we have that a different you know that that the different part of the team is doing something else, then I might independently decide that I'm going to set aside something that although they agreed all we need to set it aside to set it aside now and to deal with something else to help them. And when you get to that level, Again, for my experience, usually that's a very good step because people then are really, really engaged and they're really empowering each other. And they obviously, you know, no one, at least in my, my experience, no one, definitely not lawyers, but also in other um, disciplines, 
people would not take the responsibility just to divert out of something. So they would say, listen, you know, I want to help them. What do you say about me doing that instead? And this is a very, very strong point. And if you get to that, that shows that your team is really on track. Um, I say periodical because we're all having crazy life and we're all, you know, running from, uh, from video conference to Zoom and we don't have a lot of time. So if you build it in the calendar and no one overruns it, and you as a leader make sure that they are met, that they are existing, that you're taking the time to have these meetings. It's uh, it's very very helpful. I can tell you that um, we had just uh, you know an internal merger recently, and the fact that we had all these patients and we you know we made sure that we never missed anything. We not only that we did a good job, we also met the timeline that was prescribed, and, and that's very helpful. It's a good experience to everyone. And the best thing is that when you complete the project then people remember it. And in your organization, people begin to say, well, you know, we were part of that team. We did that. So you also get credit politically, if you will, within the organization. And when you're going to engage next time, people say, oh, he was part of that successful team. So I want to work with him. I want to see how that works. So again, if, if you do these things correctly, I think that you build a tower that is going to be a lot of added value at the end of the day to the organization and also to yourself. We're coming to the end of this conversation, and uh, you touched upon video and shared drive and technology generally uh, as a way to build trust, as a way to build trust on your team, as a way to build trust across cultures, as a way to build trust across the organization that includes you know, folks who have a privilege of legal education and folks who had a privilege of other education. You know, lawyers have both fascination and fear of technology um, because, you know, it comes with all the possibilities and then it also comes with risks. Um, and we're coming to the end of this conversation. So, and that may be kind of the last thing I would like us to discuss. You know, given the, this really high potential of technology, its ability to really to help build trust, to navigate culture, to navigate across uh, different skills and backgrounds, how do you, how do you as a leader, and how do you recommend that other leaders think about using this very powerful tool without injuring themselves? Well, first of all, I'm afraid that you might always injure yourself. Even when I rode my bicycle, I injured myself. So you have to take consideration that there's always a risk. So you need to mitigate the risk. But the fact that there is a risk doesn't mean that you don't need to take it. I think that. Uh, um, a lot of time, we made a lot of, of, of executive decisions that take risk, and we should do that. And at, at times, the risk, you know, uh, materializes, and, and it's unpleasant as it is because you didn't want the risk to, to materialize. But when it does, you need to handle it. So you mitigate it, you build a bad play, uh, you build a plan B, and so on and so forth. But but you need to take the risk. I personally, I might just, I, I'll, I'll give you a, my, one of my tips is that I found out that a lot of time, all the systems that we work with, the capacity that we use is less than 50% of the real capacity of the systems. And, and I think that first and foremost is learn the systems that you do have and find out how you can do more with them. I think that the second thing is when you want to introduce a new system, and, and there I personally find it as a challenge, is to try and find the right system. I try to get the IT experts to assist me. I I try to find a team that is diverse and to get a lot of support from different angles to see what's going to work. 
And, you know, I take an IT person, I take a finance person, I go to companies that had experience with the system and try to find out how that works. Um, I try to define to myself, what do I want the system to do? I try to see the, whether the system is, is not too sophisticated for my team. Because, you know, if you're going to buy a, a system that at the end of the day, your, your legal team is not going to be able to work with it because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're scared of technology, they're less uh, capable in these fields, they're, they're strong suits and something else, then, you know, you don't achieve much. So you need to try and, and tailor the suit to, to the participants and, and to the users. Um, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you, you define, I personally always try to get competition between the vendors. I don't, I don't like to go to a place that I have only one option. I always like to have several options and to choose out of them. And there's a responsibility that you choose wrong and it happens. So, you know, you need to make sure that you embrace the risk and, and you, you know, that's part of life. But I, I think that the technology is, you know, nowadays everything is so easy and so accessible um, and it could make life much, much easier. I can tell you that one of the biggest challenges that I found in my work is to try to persuade people to use new, te new technologies because they're so afraid of that and they feel that they are so risk adverse. Um, and you show them, you know, you really demonstrate to them by personal example how much time they can save. It takes time and, and you have to be very um, coherent and if you decide that something is true, you have to go and use a personal example and to show them that you're working with it and, again, correct them. And every time there's a problem, take it personally and address assistance and make sure that they get the assistance and explain to them again and again. And I think that that uh, this kind of effort in resilience will been, they prevail. But you have to invest into it. It's it's not uh, plug and play, okay? It's it, That doesn't work, my experience, in systems that you apply to your team because People, as, as you said, people like what they used to, you know, and they're very comfortable. And if that was a situation, we're still all using, you know, cord phones uh, at home and not cell ones. So, oh, that's not a beautiful to... reality, Aviram. That's not, let's not go back there. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, by the way, one of the things that I do with people that are, are risk adverse or, or that are uh, less into technology use is to tell them, you know what, uh, give me your iPhone or Android or whatever, and let's get back to the Nokia. Are you willing to do that? No, I'm not. But you had the big change, right? One of the biggest revolutions is the cellular and the smartphones. So you underwent that from your own experience, and you're not willing to go back. So why wouldn't you do that in what I'm providing you at work? And and trying to get these people to this dissonance, it's not easy. It didn't solve, you know, raising it for the first time didn't solve my problem. The other party that my, my team members continued to object but when you repeat it and you repeat it and you show them and you invest time in it to show them the advantages, at the end of the day, you will prevail. You know, that's the way of life. But you need, but you need to invest into it. It's not going to happen just because you say so or just because you think it's right. You need to persuade them. I, I think that the key message is that you need to invest in your team members and to persuade them so they would feel that what you're saying is true. And again, that goes back to the trust that we spoke of. And, and when you introduce the technology is to tell them, listen, you know, it's going to be difficult at the beginning, but later on, you're just not going to know how you live without it. And, and, and actually, that's what happens. So you need to hold their hand and make sure that you have just the time to go through that process. I love it. Life is not plug and play. Avram, I completely enjoyed this conversation and learned so much from you. Thank you for finding the time to 
talk to me across the oceans. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and thank you so much. Thank you, Olga. You were a great host and I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much.